Please bow your hearts in prayer with me. Father, we, um, we thank you for this day that we get to come. We thank you for the little hint of spring that we have today. We thank you for the opportunity to fellowship with each other, to see each other, to talk, hear about each other's weeks, sharing each other's joys and burdens. And God, we, uh, we thank you that we have your word. We can read it together, that we can study it together, that we can be enriched, we can be encouraged, we can be affirmed, and that you would love us enough to tell us we're wrong. And so, Father, we, we ask that you would make this time that we have useful. We ask that, that your Spirit, Holy Spirit, come, move in our hearts, enlighten us to your truth. Where necessary, we pray that you would convict us of our sins. Where we desperately need it, we pray that you would encourage us with the grace, love, and hope that are available in Jesus Christ. Speak to us, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, I can't help but wonder what that last week was like for the disciples. As they, they prepare, they're, they're leading up to the cross. They don't know they're leading up to the cross, but they've been walking with Jesus for three years now through the countryside, traveling from town to town, crossing the Sea of Galilee a couple times that we know about, seeing unbelievable things, just seeing just crazy stuff. You know, when Jesus came to them and said, follow me, they did. They didn't know what was about to happen. They've seen this guy literally walk on water. They've seen Pharisees who, who are overflowing with arrogance just silenced by this humble teacher from Galilee. They've, they've seen a, a few thousand people fed, several thousand people fed, from what seemed like just a small, modest lunch, and it just got multiplied before their eyes to the point where there were baskets of food left over. They've seen a raging sea just silenced and calmed at the mention of a word. They've seen dead people come to life, leprosy disappear, lame people get up and walk. They, they saw Jesus' clothes become Clorox bleached clean in front of Moses and Elijah on the mountain with them. All this and more. They've, they've heard the best preaching ever heard in the history of the world. And then they're, they're coming up to Jerusalem. And Jesus' mind and his eyes have just been set straight at Jerusalem. And, and as they're coming to town, 
Jesus tells them just the weirdest thing. I think for these guys, there had to be just be so many awkward moments following Jesus in those days. And thankfully, we can still have awkward moments following Jesus, in case you were worried about missing out on that. Um, so Jesus just tells them the most awkward thing. He says, all right, you're going to go, and you're going to find, there's going to be a donkey and her baby. There's going to be the colt, the foal of the donkey, and they're going to be tied up. And just go up and untie the colt. And if a guy comes out and says, hey, what are you doing with my donkey? Just say, hey, don't worry, the teacher needs it. And he'll be cool with it. What? Like, All right, so they go. They, sure enough, there's a donkey. They're like, how does Jesus know this stuff? All right, they start untying the donkey, like waiting for some guy, like whatever the first century version of get off my lawn was. They're waiting for that moment. Sure enough, hey, what are you doing with my donkey? Uh, teacher needs it? Ah, Cool. He said this would happen. They, they bring the donkey, this donkey that's never been ridden, and Jesus is like, hey, I'm going to ride that thing. They're like, this isn't going to go well. They get on, it, it goes well, but as they're coming to town, people start shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they're throwing branches down on the ground, and they're throwing cloaks down on the ground, because you would never want a donkey to walk on dirt. Right? Like because of the guy riding the donkey. And they're like, what is happening? And, and they've got to be thinking, well, this is it. Like, we're coming. We're going to take Jerusalem. The kingdom of God is here. All these parables are about to be lived out. Guys, after three years, this is it. And then Jesus, it's like if, if, the, if the Pharisees are a bear, Jesus is there with a stick doing this for a whole week. He goes into the temple the week of Passover. This is the busiest week of the year. This is, this is their Black Friday shopping event, so to speak. He goes in there, he just starts flipping over tables, may, like whipping people, chasing them out, and condemning them for their sin, for what they've done. He does this to the temple in Jerusalem, drives everyone out on the busiest week of the year. And then he tells this Pharisee, he tells this parable that the Pharisee, like he's right in front of the Pharisees. He's clearly talking about the Pharisees and not in a good way. And the whole parable is God's going to come and judge these people. And they're like, hey, wait a second. We think that's about us. And then if you go over to, to Luke, uh, Luke 20, verse 19, it's after this parable. Um, it says the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour for they perceived that he told this parable against them but they feared the people so they they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor and uh and so at that moment they start plotting and it's like jesus i, I I remember studying this with a friend of mine, and, and we, we come up to these passages of Jesus' final week in Jerusalem. He's like, man, it's like Jesus wanted to die. It's like Jesus was like just daring these Pharisees to kill him the whole week. And it worked. So we come to the last night. Jesus again tells, 
tells the guys to do something kind of awkward. Go to a stranger, say the teacher needs something, and they're going to give it to you. So, hey, go tell this guy, hey, we need your room for the Passover. The teacher needs it. And they get it, and they're preparing for the Passover. This last night with Jesus. They don't know it's the last night. And here they come to the Passover meal. Jesus and his disciples. Now in a traditional Passover meal, in the Seder meal, there's, there's four questions that a child who's at the meal, it's typically the youngest child who's able to ask the questions and process them. So probably elementary age child will be asking these questions. And there are four questions. And the questions have to do with the food. You know, why, why don't we have any leaven in the bread? Why, why this about the lamb? Why, why aren't there any bones broken? And, and the, the, the answers to the questions will, will tell about the first Passover, and it's how they instruct their children in these things. But every question starts with the same phrase. Why is tonight different from all other nights? Now, I don't know if the disciples did this as they were celebrating the Passover that night. Or if they even got a chance to start in on the questions. But this night was different than all other nights. This night was completely different. In fact, it was different than anything the disciples had expected. This night, this last night, this night we're going to be discussing from now up to Easter. This is how we're going to be preparing for Easter. We're going to be, this is traditionally called the Upper Room Discourse. Big chunk of it happened in the upper room. Big chunk of it happened in the garden. So here we are. We're in the upper room on the last night. On this night, Jesus gave the disciples some crucial teaching about Himself, about them, about God the Father, about the Holy Spirit. The disciples were completely unaware of the the fact that they were about to be commissioned as pastors, church planters, evangelists. They didn't know they were about to be sent out to do what we now call the Great Commission. But this is their last Passover meal with Jesus. This conversation, this is, is John 13 to 16. It's part of, uh, you know, Jesus prayed 17 as, as part of this last night. And it all leads up to the crucifixion. The disciples no doubt would have had a lot of Passovers in their life. They may have been setting the table and remembering when they were the child, asking, why is tonight different than all other nights? Why is there no leaven in our bread? And waiting for the patriarch of the family to say, well, there's, there's no leaven because the Israelites had to leave Egypt in haste. They may have been remembering different ways those questions were answered, different ways that their moms prepared the bitter herbs for the meal. Remembering grandparents who had been with them or cousins who had been with them at the meal and and this was a special time for them. Remembering the first time they saw a sacrifice at the Passover. But this last night was not what they had planned. This was not what they had expected. 
big part of Jesus' plan was for the disciples to know the supreme importance of looking to Him on this night. He wanted them to look at Him. Let's read the passage. I'm going to start in John 13, 1. Turn, turn with me if you haven't gone there yet. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father... Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come from the Father and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus said, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterwards, you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, "The, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. And that is why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet, he put on his outer garment and resumed his place. And he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking to all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. The point here is that Jesus is making is, is, is big, it's profound. But John, as he's written his gospel, as the Holy Spirit has revealed to him how to record it, has set us up to look at Jesus. And this is a, over the next several weeks leading up to Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, and Easter as we move through this, a, a, a super obvious 
exegetical point as you study scripture is look at what Jesus is doing. Look where he's sitting. Look where he's standing. Look at his actions. Listen to his words. He's the point of all of this. Super obvious. But for us, if you're taking notes, we need to see that this was not a well-planned night for the disciples, but this was a very well-planned night for Jesus. And looking to Jesus on this well-planned night, it is important to see Jesus' view of the room. Jesus had this night all planned out. And so we want to look at this night through his view of the room. It's really interesting. John doesn't come and say, all right, so as I came in, as me, the the disciple Jesus loved, because that's how I roll, as I came in, I, I saw the room sitting. Jesus was over here. He was looking around. And then he did this weird thing where he got up and washed our feet. No, he, he goes through it. He tells it from Jesus' point of view. So let's look at the room through Jesus' eyes. In verse 1, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus knew his hour had come to depart out of the world having uh, to, to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus walks into the room with his disciples. The table is set, and Jesus knows exactly what's about to happen. I imagine Jesus walked in, and he took a deep breath. This is the hour. This hour starts. This is, this is tonight and tomorrow. I crush the head of the serpent like what God told Eve I would do. This is it. This, tonight, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to break the bread and tell him it's my body that's going to be broken for him tomorrow. I'm going to pour the cup and tell him this is my blood of the new covenant. This is happening tonight. It's here. It's go time. Here we go. And Jesus, I don't think he was panicked. I don't think he was stirred yet. I'm sure he was very contemplative, thinking over the past three years with these guys. There was a deep love for them. Having loved them, he loved them to the end. He loved them from the moment he said, follow me, even before that. And he he loved them through his whole earthly ministry. And he was going to keep loving them through all eternity and is still loving them now. Jesus knew what was about to happen. He knew he had loved them. And going on into verse 2, during supper when the devil had already put it into his heart, into the heart of Judas Iscariot, to betray him. Jesus looking at the room. He's looking at the food. He's smelling the herbs. He's smelling the bread. He sees the wine. He sees the disciples making sure everything's in place. And he sees Judas. He looks right at Judas. Satan's already at work here. Satan's put it into his heart. The rest of the guys don't know it. Judas knows it. I know it. What's going to happen here? They both know the price. They both know exactly how many pieces of silver are in that bag that Judas has. Or is about to get. Jesus knows. In verse 3, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand. 
He had come from God. He was going back to God. Jesus, Jesus knows. Jesus is the royal creator. He's the great high priest. He knows all this stuff. And he sees Judas. He knows what Satan has put in his heart. And D.A. Carson, he writes, with such power and status at his disposal, speaking of Jesus, we might have expected him to defeat the devil in an immediate and flashy confrontation and to devastate Judas with an unstoppable blast of divine wrath. And Jesus could have done it. He could have had lightning come and strike Judas at that very moment. And everyone would have said, what was that for? And Jesus goes, just trust me, I got this. He could have done all of that. But as Carson points out, he does something much more shocking to everyone but himself. Because up to this moment, everyone else thinks, oh, we're celebrating the Passover in Jerusalem. How special, how sentimental. We're with Jesus. This is going to be great. I wonder what tomorrow's going to hold. Jesus, instead of striking Judas down at that moment, knowing what the devil has, has already started, and what Judas is complicit in, Jesus knowing all these things and having all things given to him in his hand from the Father, about to go back to the Father, he doesn't say a word. He doesn't give them the handbook and systematic theology. He doesn't give them the church planter's guide to the galaxy. Instead, he removes his outer garment. And he ties a towel around his waist. He goes over to a water basin. Instead of the traditional questions of the Passover that the disciples may have had in mind, Jesus does things things completely different. He starts by humbling himself in front of the disciples. He assumes the posture of the lowest servant in the room and he goes to the, the water basin. At this point, we have to observe Jesus' actions. What is the royal co-creator reconciling high priest of God going to do now? Well, he takes that water and he, he pours it into the basin and he began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Now, I know some of you are completely disgusted by feet. And that's okay. They're gross. In this culture, you think about it, you're walking outside on dirt roads wearing sandals all the time. You know, in the summer when you do a lot of yard work and you think, oh, I'm getting a nice tan, and then you take a shower and your tan is gone? It's like that, but worse. It's really interesting for me here. Jesus knows he's about to be betrayed. And the first thing he does is not brief them. He doesn't start by saying, all right, guys, buckle up and pay attention. This is about to get real. That guy's going to betray me. We're going to go in the garden. I'm going to sweat blood. It's going to be real freaky. The, the chief priests and their guard, they're going to come out and arrest me. 
I'm going to get crucified. It's going to be brutal. It's going to hurt a lot. You're going to get freaked out. You're going to try and run away. You're going to hide. Don't worry, I'll come back. You know, he's briefed them up to this point on what's going to go on. He doesn't start with saying it happens tonight. He starts with washing their feet. He starts with assuming this position of servant. And he's going around and he's washing all their feet. He's wiping them. The, the water's getting filthy. He's touching their feet, this dishonorable part of their body. And I can only imagine the looks the disciples are giving each other. It's that look of, someone's got to say something. This ain't right. Are you going to say, I'm not saying anything. Are you going to say something, I'm not going to say anything. He touched my feet. Oh, I don't even like touching my own feet. He's going over to his feet now. What's, this isn't right. He's supposed to be at the place of honor, and here he is doing the worst job in the room. Why is he washing our feet? Why is he serving us like this? He's not our servant. He's our rabbi. Someone's got to say something. Well, thankfully, we have Peter. Because Peter is willing to say at any given moment what all of us are thinking. Peter and I can, I can relate to Peter. I don't have a filter either. Peter just opens his mouth. Jesus, you're going to wash my feet? This, this is backwards. This is beyond backwards. I wouldn't wash your feet. You're going to wash mine? Jesus says, what I am doing, I can imagine Peter's just, or Jesus is just snickering a little bit here. All right, Peter, I'm doing this. You're not going to understand it now. You'll understand it later. How many times does God start moving in such a way and we're like, God, this isn't right. God's like, trust me, this will make sense eventually. He tells Peter that, and Peter has a choice here. Peter can either say, Okay, Jesus, I have no idea why you're washing my feet, but I trust that this will make sense later. I trust you as my rabbi. Peter doesn't do that, does he? He goes from a facade of humility to outright objecting to what Jesus is doing. Lord, what does he say here? Lord, do, do you wish to wash my feet? And then Peter, Jesus answers in verse 8. He says, you shall never wash my feet. And part of this for Peter's, Peter's credit is Peter is, a, is acknowledging the absurdity that Jesus would wash his feet. Jesus, I, I refuse to let you lower yourself to someone who would wash my feet. I'm a fisherman. At this point, Peter needs to be rebuked. Peter's not acting in faith of trusting Jesus. Peter's acting out on his own. Calvin says that true wisdom of faith is to, improve, is to approve and embrace with reverence whatever comes from God, knowing that it is done rightly and properly. And until a, a person renounces his freedom to pass judgment 
on God's deeds, no matter how much they may try to honor God, pride will always lurk disguised as humility. Let me say that last part again. Until a person renounces his or her freedom to pass judgments on God's deeds, no matter how much they may try to honor God, pride will always lurk disguised as humility. Peter is rebuking Jesus. He's disguising his humility. He wants to honor Jesus, but he's refusing to let Jesus do what Jesus wants to do. Jesus' actions are often not necessarily what we want. Peter didn't want his washed, his feet washed by the Lord of the universe. He disguised it as humility. I'm a humble fisherman. Jesus, you can never serve me this way. But Jesus goes on to try and explain to Peter what's really going on. If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Peter's about face is comical, and it's okay to laugh. Because Peter goes from saying, you shall never wash my feet, to Jesus, if getting my feet washed means I have a share with you, here's my hands, here's my head, don't, don't forget anything. Wash all of me then, not just my feet. Peter goes from super humble to I want to be super holy. Wash all of me. And Peter, Jesus explains to him, you're already clean. In John 15, Jesus is going to tell him later on in this evening, he's going to say, you're clean because of the word I spoke to you. You're all clean. He's saying you're clean. You've been washed by me already. What you now need is your feet washed. And there's a principle here that I... As I, was, as I was digging through and seeing what others have said about this passage and what they've, what they've found in the meaning here, what they've said is, look, look, as believers, our heart has been washed. But we continue to sin. So we continually need our feet washed. I can, my, my heart is clean. I am secure. I have a share in Jesus. But I continually need to have my sins washed away, even though the salvific, the saving work of Jesus has already taken hold in my heart. I encourage you to grow and grow and get better and better at repenting of your sin. A friend that's helped me a lot in my faith words it as having a lifestyle of repentance. I should never grow weary of going to the cross and saying, Lord, forgive me. Father, forgive me by the blood of Jesus of what I've done today, of what I did yesterday, of the thoughts I've had, of the things I've looked at, of the anger I've kept in my heart, of the bitterness, of the unforgiveness, the lack of self-control. God, forgive me in receiving that forgiveness. So Jesus says, Peter, you're completely clean, but your feet still need to be washed. Your heart is clean, but you still get filth on you. That's, that's a good reminder for us. But then he says, verse 11, for he knew who was to betray him, and that's why he said, not all of you are clean. Peter, you're clean. You guys are clean. Not every single one of you is clean. There's a problem with one of you. I imagine this created quite the buzz. And at this point, Jesus finishes washing the feet. I'm sure they're like, what does he mean not all of us are clean? One of us might need to be worried about something. And Jesus goes and he, and he puts on his cloak and he sits back at what, what must have been the place of honor at that table. 
before we get too far ahead, with Jesus' actions, I want us to, to take note of this. Jesus was at the place of honor at the table. And he left the place of honor at the table, the head of the table, that seat of honor. And he, and he left the honor and went to the most, most humble place. And Jesus is washing the feet. He's not just doing an action. He's not just saying, be a servant like I'm being a servant. He's showing us, you know, he's showing the disciples in a way they can really conceive what the incarnation was all about. I was at the place of highest honor. I went to the place of lowest service. He left his father's throne above. So infinite, so free his grace. Emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. The foot washing shows us the incarnation of Jesus. He left the most honorable place in the room and went to the least honorable place in the room. Jesus left glory above to be born as a human, raised in a small town by a poor family, and bled for us on a cross. We can't join in Peter's original objection to say, Jesus, you shall never Wash my feet. Jesus, you shall never wash me. Jesus, you can't serve me. Instead, we need to be served by Jesus and marvel that He would serve us. I hope that God would rid us of the pride that says, I'm too good to be served by the Savior. Instead to say, I can't believe the Savior served me. And to respond in thankfulness. And then we go to Jesus' words. Because Jesus sits down and He sits down to teach them. And to start telling them what's what's just taken place, and what's about to take place. And so let's listen to Jesus' words. I want to start at the end of verse 12. Do you not understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, have humbled myself, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor a, a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking to all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. There's a structure to what Jesus says here. And it, and, it, and it plays out twice. And here's what it is. Here's the basic structure of 12, really of, of 12 through 17. And it happens twice. Here's who I am. Here's who you are. Here's what you need to do. Identity and application. 
He identifies the status of everyone in the room, and he says, here's what you need to do. So the first round is he goes, you call me teacher and Lord. If I've done it, so should you. I am your rabbi. Jesus affirms their view of him. Our view of Jesus matters. What we believe about Jesus matters. Is he the Lord? Is he a Lord? It's a big deal. If Jesus is your Lord, he is your only Lord, there's an application to that. Then we, then we listen to him. Then we follow him. Then we, you know, and, and the way a rabbi would instruct their disciples, the, the goal of the disciple was to become the rabbi. You wanted to pick up their mannerisms. You wanted to eat your bread the way your rabbi ate their bread. You wanted to walk and have the same gait in your pace as they did. You wanted to emulate that rabbi in every way possible. The goal was to become the rabbi so that people would say, oh, You really remind me of your rabbi. I can see exactly who your rabbi is by your life. And so the goal for us as we transfer this is to follow Jesus in such a way that when people watch us, they say, wow, this is a lot like Jesus. The way you love people, the way you lay yourself down, the way uh, wisdom comes out, you, you, you remind me of Jesus. The way you serve the people around you. Are we becoming more and more like Jesus? I am your teacher. If I, the Lord, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. You know, this is not, I, I don't believe that Jesus is saying, once a year, wash each other's feet, and then you can check this off your list. Serve each other remarkably one day a year, and then you're good. I don't think that's it. I think instead of what Jesus is saying is lower yourself to serve one another. Lower yourselves to serve one another. This is the last night that Jesus has with the disciples and the first instruction is wash each other's feet. A few hours I'm going to die. It's going to be horrible. Wash each other's feet. Why is that important? Why is that so important? Are we going to have a Christ-like love and servitude to one another? Are we willing to lower ourselves, to model Christ to each other? Are we willing to set aside our schedules, our priorities, our social status to help each other? In a willful, humble, loving way. I want you to really ask yourself that this week. Am I willing to set aside my status to serve the people around me? Am I willing to lower myself for the people around me? In the next set, Jesus changes the status. It's not teacher and Lord. It's it's master. Truly, truly, I tell you the truth here. 
A servant, you, is not greater than a master. You're not better than me. Thanks, Jesus. You're not better than me. A servant is not greater than a master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. So here we have, we have kind of two status symbols here. We have the servant and master and the messenger and the sender. So Jesus has now asserted his titles, teacher, Lord, master, and sender. And the application is simply, if you, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Serving and going are the responses out of here. Do we li- you know, even if you live in Des Moines and God has clearly called you to Des Moines, I believe that's the case for, for, for most, if not all of us. Some of you need to go somewhere else. God's wanting you to go and you're not willing to and you're digging your feet in. Others of you, God is clearly brought here. Would you live as sent here in Des Moines? Maybe there's a reason you're at the school you're at. Maybe God is sovereign enough to have you at the high school you're at. What if that's the case? What if God is sovereign enough that you didn't just land in a job that gives you enough money to live the life you want, and even though you feel stuck there, maybe God has you in that job for a reason. Is he that sovereign over your life? Is God sovereign enough to pick your address? To put you next to... Emily and I... When we came to move here, we really wanted God to, we were excited about moving to a city. We were coming from a town of 5,500 with 15 churches. It was a great town. I was, I was excited to be around some non-believers again. Not that there weren't non-believers there. There were. I was really excited to be around some non-believers, the people who openly disagreed with me. God, what, where do you want us? We, we, we were doing all these searches on Zillow and stuff. We came down to two houses out of Des Moines that we were really interested in. They were on the same street. I can see the other house we were looking at from my front porch. Is God sovereign to put you where you are? And then what does it mean to, in that place, live ascent? To say, okay, teacher, Lord, the one who sent me, my master, what do you want from me here? What do you want from me here where I am? And then Jesus continues on, and he really sets a bomb off in this room. He really does. He, uh, he says, I'm not talking to all of you. I'm not talking to all of you, because one of you is about to betray me. I can only imagine the panic that went through this room. One of you is about to betray me. And the disciples, they, their concern with, is who's going to betray Jesus. But look at Jesus' concern. Verse 19, we have Jesus' concern. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am He. This is very similar to what, to what Jesus told Peter in verse 6. What I am doing you do not understand, but afterwards you will understand it. Jesus is setting up opportunities for them to look back and say, he's he's the Messiah. He's the Christ. You don't understand this. And Jesus knows the level of freak out that's about to happen for these disciples. 
Jesus has told them over and over again, I'm going to be risen up. I'm going to, I'm going to be lifted up on a tree. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to die. Three days later, I'm going to come back. It's one thing to hear that from someone who sometimes speaks in code, right? The parables. It's one thing to hear that from Jesus and thinking, well, clearly he doesn't mean a Roman cross. There must be something. There's always something deeper with Jesus. Clearly he's not just saying he's going to die on a Roman cross and then come out of the ground three days later. It must be something else because that's impossible. You know, never mind the feeding of the 5,000, the walking on water and so forth. It's one thing to hear Jesus talk about it and think he might be talking about something else. It's another thing altogether to see him whipped, to see the crown of thorns come down, to see him struggle to carry this cross to the point where someone else has to carry it for him, to see him nailed to a cross, hang up on there, to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? To have someone shove a spear into his side, see blood and water come out to prove that he's dead. And then to take his limp corpse off the cross. To see that is completely different than hearing he's going to die. You don't come back from that death. Jesus knows they're about to hit freak out to the highest degrees. And he's saying, I'm telling you this now, so when it happens, your response is belief. When Judas betrays me, hopefully your response will be like, this is exactly what Jesus said. Jesus is in control of, being, of him being arrested. But even as Jesus is talking about this betrayer, let's go back. Let's go back in the story. Jesus loved them. He loved them to the end. He washed their feet. Jesus, with his cloak off, the towel around his waist, washed and wiped Judas' feet. Jesus humbled himself to wash and wipe the feet of the one whom Satan was working with to betray him, knowing it was going to happen. So when Jesus says, serve each other the way I've served you, it doesn't just mean serve our friends. It does not just mean that we serve our friends. It means that we are willingly serving those who are going to betray us. What does it mean to serve someone who's broken trust with you? What does it mean to lay yourself down for someone who's getting ready to stab you in the back? That is tough stuff. This is what Jesus does. Jesus' concern is that they believe in him in the midst of hardship. And he says, Truly I say to you, whoever receives the one I send, the messenger I send out, whoever receives the messenger I send out receives me, and whoever receives me receives my Father, the one who sent me. As we go with the message of Jesus, we need to go in humble service, not in arrogant platitudes. We need to go in humble service in, in, in a way that shows people who Jesus is through our actions. Remember what Dave said last week, that we are ambassadors of the reconciliation of Christ. We are here to tell the world what Christ has done. 
the way we serve each other, the way we serve those around us, models to the world the work of Christ. But we need to be careful because some people say, well, I just need to tell people about Jesus and then they're complete jerks. They can tell people all about Jesus in great clarity and they're a complete jerk. And then there's other people who, who serve so well and never say a word about Jesus. We cannot divorce the two. The service of Christ and the proclamation that he died for your sins and rose again need to go completely hand in hand. Jesus serves and he gives them a hint of the commission in verse 20. And I wonder if at this point or soon after any of these disciples went back in their minds to that Sermon on the Mount back in Matthew 5. Jesus is telling them, you're you're sent. I'm your master. I'm your teacher. Do as I am. Serve each other. And I wonder if they went back here in their minds and how long it took them afterwards. Matthew obviously tied it together. He recorded it. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others. Let the light of the gospel, the light of Christ that's in you, shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let's follow our teacher. Let's do what he does. Let's serve people. Let's serve people in great love and in great humility, even people who don't love us back. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the example of Jesus who who left the Father's throne above so free, so infinite is grace and emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. God, would we follow in this example? Would you help us to humbly serve those around us, to love those around us, even our enemies? And to do so in a way that through our good works, many people would come to glorify your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.